The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So today in the church calendar, we mark the fifth and final salvation event for establishing God's new covenant with the world through Jesus Christ. The first, of course, was Jesus' incarnation, the entrance of God made flesh into the world, which we celebrate with Christmas. Then came Jesus' crucifixion, his bearing of human sin on himself and being put to death on the cross, which we mark with Good Friday. Then three days after that was his resurrection from the dead, Jesus' defeat of death and vindication as the Son of God, which we celebrate on Easter. And then after 40 days of showing himself to be risen through various appearances, Jesus ascended into heaven, which the bishop talked about to us last week. And finally, 50 days after Easter and 10 days after his ascension, with Jesus, Jesus physically removed from the world, God sent his Holy Spirit on Pentecost, which was described in Acts chapter 2, just read by Dolores, and which we celebrate today. Well, this morning, I want to talk about what Pentecost means that is, what are its implications for us now, some 2,000 years later? If one does just a cursory survey of the scriptural accounts of the five major salvation events I just listed, they'll notice that one element they all share in common is that God uses miraculous sights and in many cases sounds to alert people to, that something is happening. You'll recall that with the birth of Christ, the Gospel of Luke describes God alerting some Jewish shepherds in a field about what had happened. 
He does it through the appearance of an angel who announced, Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this is followed, you'll recall, by a whole host of angels suddenly appearing and praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. In addition to the appearance to the shepherds, the Gospel of Matthew reports that some Gentile magi were also led to the Christ child by God, led from the east by the aid of a star. But then fast-forwarding to Jesus' crucifixion, we find it was also marked by miraculous sights and even some sounds. As Jesus hung on the cross, Luke reports that a darkness fell over the land. And at the moment he died, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And then the earth shook, and the curtain in the temple that was a foot thick tore in two from the top to the bottom. All of this probably created quite the ruckus, I would imagine. But that wasn't even all, as Matthew reports that people then saw the bodies of the dead saints coming out of the tombs and appearing to people around Jerusalem. Though for some reason I've never heard people make much of that. It kind of gets lost there in the Gospel of Matthew. Sermon idea for next year. Then next, of course, three days later, the miraculous sight that alerted Jesus' followers that he had risen in addition to his resurrection appearances themselves, was the appearance of angels again, this time to the women who'd come to his tomb. And then last week, we heard about Jesus' ascension, where his apostles, after being blessed by Jesus, witnessed him being lifted up into the air and taken in a cloud out of their sight. And after that, angels appeared again, assuring them Jesus would one day return the way he had left which we still await. But with the first four events in God's unfolding of his plan of salvation through Christ, with each one, God used miraculous, otherworldly sights, and in some cases, even sounds, to alert those present that something significant was happening. And this is consistent with what Jesus taught about one purpose of the signs that he even performed in his public ministry, that these miracles alerted people that he had been sent by God, validated that he was from God. But it's also true that the nature of the signs recorded in the New Testament. The nature of these signs were meant to signify something about the salvation God was bringing. For example, when Jesus would heal a deaf or a blind person, these were signs of his desire for people to heal people's spiritual deafness and to heal their blindness, our blindness to the truth. While his changing water into wine or feeding the 5,000, these were physical miracles meant to point to the spiritual abundance of life in his kingdom that he was ushering in. But also with these major events of salvation we've talked about here, the nature of them also revealed something about their particular significance. For example, by choosing to come to us as a little baby... Jesus revealed 
something about himself and his ministry. He revealed that he was a king who was willing to make himself vulnerable because he came to serve rather than to be served. Then at the moment of Jesus' death, when the the curtain separating the people in the temple from the Holy of Holies, when that was torn in two, that was meant to reveal what Jesus' death had accomplished, right? That it had made a way for any one of us who put our trust in him to approach God without fear because our sins have been forgiven. At the resurrection, Jesus' empty tomb revealed that death had forever been changed, that it was no longer the final word for believers and therefore had lost its sting. And then with the ascension, if you think about it, Jesus could have left the earth in any variety of ways. But by exiting in an upward direction on a cloud, this visually communicated that he was going to the place where God is, where God was thought to be, right? To rule over all of creation, to be above it. Well, all that we've said about these first four milestone salvation events, these elements that were kind of common in all of them, God's use of miraculous sounds and sights as an alert, but also as a means to reveal the spiritual significance of what was happening, this was also the case at the fifth and final salvation event of Pentecost that we celebrate today. As we heard from Acts chapter 2, When the Holy Spirit came upon the believers, it began, or they were alerted it was happening, with a sound like a mighty rushing wind filling the entire house where they were, followed by flames alighting upon each one of their heads. So this miraculous sight and sound alerted the apostles that something very significant was happening, And yet the signs, the nature of them also helped them understand what was happening. Not just that something was happening, but it showed them what was happening. Before ascending into heaven, Jesus had told them that in only a matter of days, they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Though, as you can imagine, I mean, they wouldn't know what that really meant or what was was this going to look like. And so that's why the nature of the, this sound and this sight, this miraculous sight, is so helpful in the moment for them, right? Because, see, in the Old Testament, God had used wind to symbolize his spirit, particularly in Ezekiel's famous prophecy the, known as the Valley of Dry Bones, right? And on many occasions, God had used fire to represent his presence, such as on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, but also in the same book with the burning bush, right? So the sight and sound of fire and wind would have left little doubt for the apostles as to what was happening, that this was it, that the Holy Spirit had come as Jesus promised. But of course, the miracles that day were not limited to wind and fire, were they? Instead, all of this was followed by the apostles receiving the ability to speak in other tongues, in foreign tongues. With Pentecost being a major feast, Jewish pilgrims from locations all over the Mediterranean were in Jerusalem at that time. And so the Spirit 
enabled the, the, the apostles miraculously to speak of the mighty works of God in these people's native tongues. And no doubt, the mighty works that they highlighted were honestly probably the four major events that, that I just went through that, that are already taking place, right? Where they're gonna stick to the majors, tell them about it, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, right? These were the mighty works they would have probably been talking about. And this was then followed up with a sermon from Peter, which ultimately benefited the foreigners who were present to the tune of 3,000 of them putting their faith in Christ and being baptized, according to verse 41. Well, how appropriate a sign this was to cap this fifth and final salvation event, to signify that the new covenant between God and humankind through Christ was now established in full God used a miracle that overcame the division of language because it would have brought to mind the Tower of Babel, which we also read about this morning from Genesis 11. The consequence in the story of the Tower of Babel was, of course, the division of language. But the point of the story was about how our sin and our human limitations really prevent us or compel us against living in a harmonious and God-glorifying manner in our natural state. And so for God to reverse the consequence of Babel with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, this points to the unique capacity of the new covenant in Christ and the Holy, Holy Spirit in particular, the unique capacity to unite people in the church despite differences of culture or class or language by helping us live beyond our natural impulses of division. However, what's imperative for us to understand is that God intends to achieve this in our lives and in his church. The way he intends to achieve this sort of unity that only he can bring about is not primarily through miracles, through making us into spiritual superheroes who can perform miraculous wonders and feats but instead by helping us to love others as Christ has and does. This isn't to deny that miracles still happen, but it is to say that they are not meant to be our focus. And if they do occur, it is by the Holy Spirit's power, right? Whether they occur is completely God's prerogative, and a focus on them, on miracles, must never eclipse the priority of love. There's a huge danger in that. For as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Paul says. 
But this is a point where many get confused when it comes to Pentecost, and where I certainly have been confused in the past regarding what focus Jesus intends for us to have as we learn to live our lives in the grace and power of his spirit. It is very easy for Christians to conclude from this Acts account of Pentecost that life in the spirit is all about the miraculous. But this temptation or misunderstanding can have grave consequences for both our own lives and for our witness. And I would suggest that one of the primary causes for this misunderstanding is that when believers have sought to understand the significance of the Holy Spirit's coming for them, there's been a tendency to focus on the passages in Scripture, like Acts 2, that give us the historical account of that initial coming and the particulars of that event. And yet, I would say that's a mistake. With the first four salvation events, believers aren't as prone to make this mistake, only with Pentecost for some reason, right? When it comes to making sense of what Jesus' birth, death, resurrection, and ascension mean for us, right? Those, those passages that record the historical event happening are super important, right? To believe they happened. But when we're trying to understand what they mean for us, our deepest understanding of what those events mean for us come either from the teaching of other scriptures, um, excuse me, not either, come from the teaching of other scriptures much more than the passages that record the historical events themselves. In other words, we understand Jesus' incarnation not so much from the story of the shepherds, but from what the rest of the scripture teaches us it means and what it means for us. So likewise, if we want to know what the coming of the Holy Spirit means for us in a practical sense, instead of drawing our conclusions from the miraculous elements of Acts chapter 2, we are much better off looking to passages of Scripture that are explicitly teaching about the Spirit's significance for us. And one such passage is our gospel passage today from John 14. There we saw Jesus before his death and resurrection, giving his disciples some advanced teaching about the Holy Spirit, which continues on, his teaching continues on even after our selection that we've read concludes. It's from teaching passages like this and others that we learn what the Holy Spirit means for us. And here in verse 16, we learn that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a helper, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. As some of you know, that word translated helper is the Greek word paraclete, which literally means one who comes alongside, one who comes alongside another. So that's what the Holy Spirit is meant to do, to help us. But to help us do what? Well, in verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we know from what we recited, uh, and what we recite in every time we celebrate Holy Communion, what we recited earlier in the liturgy, we know that Jesus summarized all his commandments when he told us to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. So we are given the Holy Spirit to help us do primarily that 
We're given the Holy Spirit to help us love God by learning what true righteousness looks like. The Holy Spirit wants to help us understand what true righteousness looks like. In verse 17, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit also, he calls him the spirit of truth, right? Because the spirit continually seeks to reveal more of the truth to us through God's word and his church. So that we better understand kind of how we're supposed to live and what love really means and looks like. But then the spirit helps us live into that truth. As we attain to a life of righteous character, overcoming our sinful habits and attitudes, not through our own strength, but by learning to rely on the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. But this, of course, is not just for our own sakes, but also for the sake of our neighbors, for the people in our lives who are close to us and people that we encounter, acquaintances. The Spirit wants to help us to love them as Christ loves them. And surely this is the meaning of verse 13. I know we're sort of going through the passage backwards a little bit. But in verse 13, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then he, he emphasizes it again. He says, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, so often... Believers have misunderstood Jesus' words here, and frankly in this whole paragraph, to be about doing miraculous signs. Things that are great in a miraculous signs and wonders sense. So, as a result of that misunderstanding, in the best cases, when we've had that misunderstanding, we've sought to help others. And in the worst cases, we've used these scriptures to justify seeking to glorify ourselves, right? Praying for miracles in Jesus' name with this teaching in mind, which praying for it is not bad in and of itself, of course, praying for God to move, but then being shocked or in some cases even devastated when the miracle we pray for doesn't happen. After all, we ended the prayer with in Jesus' name, and what does he say here? Well, there may be occasions where it is God's will to do a miracle. But that's what Jesus' promise here is actually about. Jesus' promise here is that anything we ask that is consistent with his will and his character, that's what in his name means. And that's what he will do and help us do. So, Again, there may be occasions where it's God's will to do a miracle, that when we ask, he does it. But we can always be sure. We can't always be sure God wants to do a miracle. We can always be sure that God's will is that we love others as he loves them and within the boundaries that he loves them within. So that is the prayer that we can always count on him answering in the affirmative. When we ask the Spirit to help us love better and love well, he will be faithful to help us do that. Incrementally, of course. We're all still works in progress. But by allowing the Holy Spirit to help us fulfill the love commandments in these ways, to, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, 
we will then be on the right track to fulfill not just the two great commandments, but also the great commission Jesus gave us to make disciples. And to fulfill Jesus' promise in verse 12 of this passage, there Jesus speaks of the exponential multiplication and expansion of his kingdom that the Spirit will bring about through his believers. When he says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. Thus, the result of the miraculous tongues on that first Pentecost leading to 3,000 repenting of their sin and being baptized into Christ. It's not that every time we share the gospel, 3,000 people are going to turn. But again, that is the initial miracle where Jesus is trying to, or Jesus, God, the Trinity is trying to reveal, give us a vision for what the new covenant is ultimately about. And so the greatest cause for celebrating Pentecost is that when God sent the gift of his Holy Spirit, in doing that, he had finally given humankind, us, the means to live as the people he'd commanded us to be. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.